All right, well, this morning's sermon text is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. I'll read that for you now. It says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a classic Christmas text, as you know. And one of the things that that means is that Christmas is about the coming of a king and his kingdom. Christmas is about the coming of a king and his kingdom. Hence the announcement to Mary that her son would be great, the son of the Most High, given the throne of his father David, reigning over the house of Jacob with a kingdom that has no end. That's literally the announcement at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Christmas is about the coming of a king and his kingdom. And our hymn writers understood that, didn't they? Our hymn writers understood that, and they conveyed those truths to us in their writing, despite the fact that 20th century preachers and worship leaders have worked really hard to undermine those themes. You see, the hymn writers gave us lyrics like, He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind, and fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. These lyrics are grand, global, governmental, cosmic. They have kingdom overtones and themes that fill up their lines. Rule, reign, and dominion is thickly saturated through all of these things. Nowadays, we still maintain those themes, but you know how we appropriate those themes, right? Now we sing songs like, You're the King of My Heart. You're the king of my heart, which really is quite the demotion unless you have a very highly inflated view of yourself, <laughs> right? It's sort of a demotion to go from king of the cosmos to, but he reigns right in here. It isn't that wonderful. <laughs> you see, our emphasis is on Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. We're not so concerned with the messianic pronouncement of Isaiah that, quote, the government would be upon his shoulders. We just want him to use those broad shoulders to bring us some personal fulfillment that we're looking for. That's what we're interested in. The point being that we once had a vision of Christ's coming, of Christmas, that was robust, cultural, and conquest-oriented. That's how we used to think about those things, hence the lyrics in the classic hymns that we sing. Jesus is saving and transforming the world as he subdues it and puts his enemies under his feet. That's what we used to write about and sing about and celebrate. Now, sadly, most of the church has a small, privatized, and therapeutic view of Jesus. It's a Jesus is my counselor whose comforting words get me through the day, precious moments 
kind of a vision of Jesus. And our evangelism is also an invitation to let Jesus be your counselor and life coach too. That's the way that we kind of get at these things, isn't it? It's not so much Jesus as king of the cosmos, it's more Jesus as king of the counseling couch. It's the way that we've spun things. Now, most of us in this barn reject the Jesus is therapist approach to Christianity that's peddled in a lot of circles. But we often reject that styling of Jesus without acknowledging that the precursor to therapist Jesus was personal salvation Jesus. Now, stay with me. Stay with me. Most of us don't realize that the precursor to therapist Jesus, most of which we would all say, yeah, get him out of here, that's a false Christ. Most of us reject that without realizing that the precursor to therapist Jesus was personal salvation Jesus. The Jesus of, say, the Billy Graham Crusades that styled Jesus coming, living, and dying as an effort aimed at individual and personal salvation. Now hear me, the gospel is not about less than your personal salvation, but I'm contending that it is about far more than that. It's not about less than your personal salvation, but it is about a tremendous amount more. Because, dare I say, you're not glorious enough to be the point of this whole thing. There's something larger afoot in the gospel than just you and me as individual souls getting to go to heaven when we die. It's bigger than that. 20th century Christianity was all about soul saving. And 21st century Christianity is all about soul soothing. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? First it was all about soul saving. Now you, you let that work its way out into a couple generations. And now we're all about soul soothing. Je Jesus came to die for your personal salvation to keep your soul out of hell to send you to heaven when you die. That's the version of the gospel that most of us grew up with, right? Personal salvation Jesus. But now it's no longer socially acceptable to talk about sin and hell. So we've kept the individualistic focus of the 20th century, but we've transferred from soul-saving as an emphasis to, as I said, soul-soothing as an emphasis, which is why every K-Love song sounds like a therapy session. But that isn't the Bible's primary emphasis, isn't it? That's not the Bible's primary emphasis. The Bible is not primarily about saving or soothing individual souls. The Bible's primary emphasis is corporate, not individual. It's public, not private. It's kingdom, not commune. In fact, did you know that Jesus didn't even preach the gospel, strictly speaking? I'm just trying to be provocative and make sure you're still paying attention. <laughs> That's really why I'm, I'm phrasing it that way. Right? Jesus didn't preach the gospel. There's always a descriptor, for the most part, throughout the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Right? Over and over and over. Jesus didn't preach the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. It was an announcement that the king had come and he was bringing his kingdom. That was the good news. Over and over in the New Testament, that's what you see. The gospel of the kingdom, not just the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is the announcement, it's the good news, that a new ruler and sovereign was setting up shop and that every other ruler and sovereign was going to have to learn his place. That was the announcement. That's the good news. 
In Scripture, the good news is not summarized as you getting to go to heaven when you die. It's summarized as Jesus bringing his heavenly kingdom to earth and subduing all things under his feet. That's the way that the gospel is summarized in the New Testament. The good news is this place being transformed into a place where what's happening in heaven is also happening here because Jesus' kingdom swallows up all of the other kingdoms. That's the gospel. The great evangelistic question of the 20th century, the personal salvation century, was this. You've heard the question, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? You guys heard that question? Maybe you were evangelized that way. Maybe you came into the household of faith with somebody asking you that question. Maybe you've asked it. Maybe that's been an evangelistic tactic that you've employed. Most of us remember that one. And then, of course, from that question, it launches into sin, God's wrath, Jesus' appeasement of that wrath on the cross, etc., etc., none of which I am denying or downplaying. Right? Don't send me an angry email saying that I'm denying those things or don't believe in them. That's not the point that I'm making. But I do want to ask you this question. What is the message of the gospel to the guy who isn't going to die tonight? So I'm interested in. What's the message of the gospel to the guy who isn't going to die tonight? What if a guy knew, I've got 20 more years, 7,305 more days before dying, and he knows it. What do you tell that guy? Would there be any reason for that guy to live his life in submission to Jesus now, rather than waiting until night 7,304 to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and make sure he went to heaven? What's the gospel for the guy who's not going to die tonight? You see, if we don't have a gospel of the kingdom ringing in our ears, then we don't even know how to evangelize without retreating to therapeutic Jesus or personal salvation Jesus. Therefore, if you run into a guy who's got his life together, he's responsible, he's well-employed, he's pretty stable, no crises to speak of, we often don't know how to tell that guy why Jesus is so great. Uh... I wish you had a crisis or something so I could tell you how Jesus could make you feel better. <laughs> you see, we often feel like we need someone to be in the middle of a personal crisis in order to feel like we can make a compelling gospel presentation, which is why if we're talking to someone who isn't in one, we'll table the hypothetical one. What if you died tonight, though? Let me see if I can't induce feelings of some kind of a personal crisis because that's the only way in which I can think to make Jesus seem valuable. That's because we exchanged the gospel of the kingdom for the gospel of personal salvation and therapy. The gospel includes our personal salvation, but that isn't its point. That isn't its ultimate point and aim. You see, we're caught up in something that's much larger and more grand than individual souls floating on clouds in heaven forever. We're caught up in something much more grand and meaningful than that. You see, we're inviting people into a kingdom that is actively taking over this world and setting all things to rights under the headship of the God-man who himself created the world that he's now saving. That's what we're invited into, a kingdom that is advancing, taking ground, winning. And so here's the thing, who cares if you're in a, the middle of a personal crisis or not? What are you doing that's more exciting and more important than that? The answer is nothing. Nothing. 
Here's another way to get at this. I know that with COVID-19 in 2020 and with wars in the Middle East and with the unhinged nature of Western civilization, the popular notion is that Jesus must be coming back like really, really, really soon. Like five minutes away, set your clock. I'm sure somebody wrote another failed prophecy book saying, you know, in 15 years, mark your calendars. (laughs) But let me ask you this. What if Jesus isn't coming back soon? Somebody was like, awkward chuckle. (laughs) (laughs) What if Jesus isn't coming back soon? What if you're not going to die tonight and the second coming isn't 10 years away? What if you got another 2,000 years before Christ splits the clouds and wraps this whole thing up? What does the gospel demand you and I do in the meantime? It's a question. Complain about the school system or build a better one? What are you supposed to do? Right? Lament the state of our nation or correct it? What are you supposed to do? Talk about how terrible the next generation is shaping up to be or mentor and disciple them so that they don't suck so bad? What are you supposed to do? You see, at Christmas, we rightly sing songs about Jesus bringing peace on earth. But what if his grand plan is to bring peace on earth through you and through me living obediently to him? And all the while, we've been just waiting for him to come back and do it without us. And what if he's actually dishonored and displeased with that mentality? I know, some of you are thinking, Wes, we get it. You're a post-millennialist. You read Doug Wilson books. We get it. We know. But I thought... This morning, we're supposed to be anchoring our Christmas celebration, not just being an opportunity for you to convert more people to your way of thinking on the end times. Like, why are you using the time that way? Uh, Well, I'm using the time that way for two reasons. One, because I'm always trying to convert people to my way of thinking about the end times because it's the best and it's awesome, uh, unless you like being a loser. So that's one. But, but But second, what I'm talking about this morning comes directly from the birth narrative of Luke chapter 1. It comes directly from the birth narrative of Luke chapter 1, verse 31. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, when Gabriel said that Mary was going to name her son Jesus, do you know what she heard? She heard Joshua. Because Jesus is just the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. Now, what does Joshua's name mean? Well, it means Jehovah's or Yahweh's salvation. And what is Joshua known for? What did, he, what did he do? Well, he was the one who led God's people into the promised land, right? He's the one who actually kicked out the Canaanites, beat back the darkness, and settled the people into God's promises. And so Gabriel says to Mary, that, that's who's in your womb. Only a thousand times stronger, a thousand times more effective, and the one who's going to bring it in its fullness. You, you hear what that's an announcement of? Do you, you hear how much larger that is than just you getting to go to heaven when you die? No, that's saying... The one who's going to bring heaven here and kick everything out that makes it unheaven-like is in your womb. The day is fast approaching when you are settled into God's promises. 
verse 32. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. The announcement to Mary is he's going to be like David. David, the bloody king who subdued Israel's enemies on all sides and ushered in the Solomonic peace that was to follow, wherein God's temple and presence would dwell amidst his people. That's who's in there, a warrior who's going to subdue all of the enemies. That's who's in your womb. It's David. You hear that? That's the, that's the birth narrative. But we have a tendency to proclaim the Jesus who's the lover of your soul in place of the Jesus who wants to give you a significant role in this kingdom program. He's saying, you guys want a, a, a counselor on a couch. I, I've, got a, I've got a job for you. I've got an enlistment. I've got something to bring you along to. What about that? You see, we should be talking about the Jesus who is taking the world back from the devil and putting all things to rights, and he's got a job for you to do. That's, that's what we're here for. That's why we've been saved. It's Ephesians 2, verse 10, isn't it? That we were saved because God had good works planned out beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 33, Gabriel says, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, our crusade-style Billy Graham Southern Baptist gospel is a truncated one that is fixated on the individual and misses what God is actually doing in the world corporately as he is manifesting his kingdom. But the announcement of the good news and glad tidings that the angel gives to Mary and to the shepherds was not a message about their personal salvation so much as it was a message about the glorious and gracious world domination that God was working through Jesus Christ as the king of the cosmos is now coming to earth and he's putting all things as they should be. That's the announcement, isn't it? That's the announcement that the angels bring. We have a tendency to preach the gospel for individual salvation, but Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom for the salvation of the whole world. These are very different points of emphasis. Jesus has bigger things in mind than just getting individual souls into heaven. He's raising up an army that's going to bring heaven to earth. That's what he's doing. That's what Christmas is about. And how about this idea, though, that God means to do these things through human means and agents rather than simply riding back down on his white horse and letting us watch? You may say, well, where'd you get that idea? The same passage that we're looking at. Because what's the, what's the whole scene in Luke chapter 1? What's the angel announcing to Mary that God is going to do this great and awesome messianic work of salvation through what? Her human womb. Do you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm getting at? The entire announcement is framed in such a way as to show us that God is going to do this entire thing through his people. Hence, Mary's womb. What's the whole story of the Bible except God conscripting his people to carry out his plans in his world? Isn't that, isn't that the reason that we have anything to read and not nothing? Because God is always doing these things through his people in real space and time and history. 
So he's going to do it like he's always done it, through you and through me, as we walk in obedience to him, because we are his body on earth. Christmas is about a coming king and his kingdom. More specifically, it's about that king bringing us into his kingdom, changing our citizenship, conscripting us into his service, and imparting to us all the benefits of his kingdom. That's why we feast and we sing. That's why we're festive and we fight. That's why we're going to take what he gave us and we're going to open our arms and give it away to the world and see it expand and grow and multiply as we do. And so today and tomorrow, we'll eat like kings. We'll sing like we've just won a battle and we'll give gifts like the whole world belongs to us. And you know why we're going to do it? Because in Christ, all of those things are true. Because in Christ, all of those things are true. Let me close with a little etymology lesson on the word Christmas that may help to enrich it some for you. Christmas is a compound word. It's Christ and Mass. Christ and Mass. Now, Mass comes from the Latin Misa, and it means I send. Misa, Mass, I send. You see, in Latin-speaking churches around the 6th century, it became common for the priest to dismiss the service by saying, Ita Misa Est. That doesn't mean much to us unless you're a Latin speaker. Ava, can you help me? I may not have even pronounced that correctly. I was speaking Latin. (laughs) It's fine. You don't actually have to say anything. This is how he would dismiss the service. He was sending them out. He was dismissing them. Again, Misa, Mass, I send. He's dismissing them from the corporate worship, the corporate meal, the corporate meeting upon Mount Zion, and he's commissioning them to do all of the things for which the worship and the meal had just prepared them. That was the way that they would send them out. Now that salutation has intentional overtones of Jesus' great commission when he sends his disciples out to disciple the nations. Now, as this way of closing the service became more and more common, eventually the service just became called itself Mass. The reason they started calling that for the name of the send-out was because they came to understand that weekly gathering as the thing that prepared them to be sent out. That's why they started calling it that. And, And so the whole service began to take the name of the end of the service that sent them out to go and be obedient to the Lord Jesus. So the weekly worship service was the place that you go to get ready to go out. That's what it was. Now, I'll give you that history and that etymology because hopefully it enriches to some degree or another our traditional word, Christmas, because it effectively means Christ sends. It's basically what it means. Christ sends. Making a celebration of Christmas a celebration not only of the fact that Jesus came to save the world, but of the fact that he does it by saving us and sending us out as his emissaries to continue his work. Christ sends. Christ sends. As what he has done inside of us gets externalized, it begins to change the world around us. That's what this whole thing is about, by God's grace. And he will do it. May these truths truly make you merry this Christmas. Let's pray.